Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM, SAM and software licensing professionals. Yay! Yeah! Yeah, go for it. Hello and welcome to the ITAM Review radio show for June, just about June 2019. Uh, welcome, gentlemen. Welcome. Hello, Molly. Hello. Hi. Good morning. Morning. We're recording this in Friday, 28th of June, and uh, heatwave is coming across Europe. And we've got a good weekend forecast, and we've, we've all got that Friday feeling. Mm, yeah, but the sun is also a ginger person's worst nightmare, so yeah, not true. everyone. Yeah. Go and find a rock. <laughs> <laughs> Shade. Two Shade. and a half thousand, you'll be right. So we've got we've got a packed agenda today. So I'm going to crack on with it. So uh, we've got lots of industry news to chomp through this month. Um, number one up, Salesforce, big CRM platform buying Tableau, which is to my my understanding is Tableau is like um, BI stuff, isn't it? It is. Yes. Yeah. Dashboards for the management and drag and drop style stuff. Uh, a neat tool set actually. Very powerful, very expensive. Um, very Salesforce, actually, in that regard. Um, it's, uh, that licensing is not cheap. Um, no, and it's a great alternative, though, to Microsoft's Power BI. So a lot of um, previous organizations I've worked with have done that whole Power BI versus Tableau, and nine times out of ten, Tableau's one, even though it's more expensive, just because it's got that additional capabilities and can handle bigger data sets. But, yeah, like, like you said, it's a really cool tool. Yeah. I think the licensing, there's a good break-even point, though, because there's a user metric, first of all, and then there's a CPU metric, isn't there? And I think yeah. it's about 25 users. Then it start, anything over 25 users starts to become economical with CPUs. Yeah, and, and they've, gone to, um, they've gone to subscription licensing as well for, um, for both of those models. So you can do, you can do either you can do perpetual or, or, or subscription. Um, right. Yeah. God, options of licensing of a vendor that cares. I can't imagine that's how complicated that's going to get in the future, can you? <laughs> exactly. And, and 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 there are free community editions as well. So as a user and actually as an item manager, this is the kind of stuff that you could use to make your um reports look all whizzy and kind of drill downable and things. Um there are community community editions out there or public editions, I think Tableau Public, I think it's called, uh, which you can use for free. Um, so, uh, of course, the, there's always restrictions, and um, you'll quickly find that you need to buy the really expensive version of Tableau. Um, but uh, it's a good way to get started. Well, what does it mean with Salesforce buying them? Well, Salesforce are all about analytics and data and surfacing stuff. So I think it's uh, it makes a good fit for them. Um, it's 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 just a growth sector. I, th I think I think there's. There's a huge amount of revenue available. You've only really got Tableau, Power BI, and perhaps Click um, following up in third place. So it's just logical. Salesforce got a vast amount of cash kicking around. They're busy growing their revenue. They they they, they want to carry on growing that revenue, obviously, and uh, they're strong in the next few years. And that is a that is a weakness currently in service now. Is that the reporting functionality isn't really fantastic, and you need to be almost a developer to be able to do it. So, the capability to replicate your service now platform on premise and run Tableau against it would be uh, very. Um, interesting to a lot of SAM people or a lot of um, data people anyway. 
I, I think it's just there in general. I, I, I think it just makes perfect sense to um, to do that. And uh, I'm, I'm sure Rich will agree around sort of Power BI. Microsoft have really pushed Power BI um, over the last two or three years because Tableau were, were, were grabbing that market. So. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like, I mean, I know magic quadrants and everything, but so Microsoft are higher up and further to the right than Tableau. Um, so they, they've done a good job. But I think a lot of this as well, because Microsoft versus Salesforce, when it's CRM, it's quite a big thing. You know, Microsoft are doing a lot with their Dynamics. Mm. And I would imagine that Dynamics plus Power BI probably beats out Salesforce on its own quite a lot. So yes. 16 billion to start winning all those CRM customers back or winning new ones in the future. It's probably, um, you know, you could use it as a loss leader even, you know, just to get those uh, CRM customers on the scene. So I would imagine it's probably, you know, that's probably a big part of it as well. And also don't forget they, um, they bought MuleSoft. So a lot of API integrations from that organization which just means lots and lots and lots of data. And what better to analyze and cut and slice and dice than Tableau? Google bought Looker as well about the same time. Looker, a uh, bottom left quadrant on, on the on the guy and the thing. Um, so I think Google paid two and a half billion or something for them. Um, so, you know, you've got to think Amazon also are missing uh, a big BI play. So I think there's a couple of them. Uh, there's Click and there's another one, uh, Thought, Thought View, Thought Spot, something like that, that are up in the top right as well. So I reckon there's a couple of them that we might see get snapped up later this year. Yeah, and, and also what you tend to find with these, um, these BI platforms is that you end up with two or three of them in your organization because certain departments like certain versions um clicks quite popular with with, with engineering departments I, I know from my experience and so um it's it's good it's good it's a good place to look for rationalization because all these licenses are are big ticket items sort of people have their favorites and because it's a development platform kind of you know things aren't transferable particularly easily um but it, it's all about it's all about salesforce building out their platform it's all about platforms at the moment Talking of, um, talking of platforms, so another thing related to Salesforce that's popped up in my radar this week, this month, is um, Salesforce hiring a product manager for software asset management apps. So I'm not clear whether they're looking to develop their own product or whether they're going to partner with other people to plug into Salesforce, but it's really mm -hmm. interesting. They've got a, they're looking for like a, a product lead, um, and it's like they, they describe it as a CEO, like the owner of the whole product that's developing SAM apps. And I just want to read a little bit. It says, um, this SAM function will be delivering and expanding technology solutions in asset management, discovery, license optimization, and operational excellence for SaaS. So that's within Salesforce. Um, and it's suggesting SaaS and client and server software. So not just SaaS. Some examples of projects in this space would include discover and normalize unmanaged purchases and bringing SaaS software under formal SAM tool management. So what on earth are they up to? I, I, I find this really interesting because why don't they just go and buy a SaaS management app? Um, there are plenty out there all in, in their growth phase, all, all in their seed rounds. So um, 
why are they building why are they building it in the house um it's that's an interesting question um clearly they're looking at the SaaS side of it it's and if salesforce are looking at it then that really is quite a big um what's the word um rubber stamp i suppose or authentication of the idea that you need to start managing SaaS. um i'm sure there'll be SaaS first and i i know they mentioned client server as well so um but what's in it for salesforce to go and go and build example, i think there's i think there's the sap style indirect access into salesforce that they could be going after mm. Are they are they looking to to also maybe make it easier to do some uh, for Salesforce as well? Do you think it's you know it could be it could be the other way around that they're looking to make it easier to manage Salesforce as an entity? There seems to be this kind of push from some of the big four vendors that they kind of want to step away from being the horrible compliance evil people coming knocking on your door and giving you a bill. Um, but equally, Salesforce, as we know, do get involved in, in software audits. Are they trying to be nice and come up with a way of making that simpler for their customers? Um, doesn't sound very Salesforcey because you know they're... they might have seen the model that Red Hat have taken, <clears throat> where Red Hats are sort of struggling to get some revenue, and are now having to chase their customers. And now they realise actually, if they get in early enough, they might be able to help their customers. Maybe it's to help their customers as well, but it might also be a revenue thing. Uh, yeah. The, the, the thing is as well, though, I mean, obviously the, the, the key point about SaaS applications is that the vendor can always see what you're using. Mm. So, I mean, I, I'm not clear on how encouraging their customers to follow a SaaS methodology for the application would particularly benefit their customers unless it is just an attempt by Salesforce to be a little bit more transparent rather than them just slapping a bill on the table saying, you're using that actually gives the customer the opportunity to verify that that salesforce aren't trying to deceive them i guess mm. well it's that it's that thing too isn't it i mean if you're if you're transparent with your your end users that that is not potentially only an order qualifier it's an order winner as well so yeah you you your marketing message then is look at what you know our competitors are doing in terms of screwing you over making life difficult making it complex boom oh look you can see your bill here running minute by minute by minute in your flash tableau dashboard i was thinking more cynically to say maybe it's a, like a business development stuff the more the more information they know about what their clients are using in terms of other SaaS apps the more the more There's they know too. about them it, the it could well be that couldn't it it's market intelligence isn't it yeah yeah <laughs> yeah you know their strategy really has been to um you know use compliance to kind of leverage people out of old contracts because lots of people have been with salesforce they've been with them they're 20 years old this year so there are loads of people on uh long-term contracts that have got really nice tasty grandfathered terms um and certainly the view is that they've been using audit and compliance to leverage people into the new models which are a lot more revenue generating for them um so they could use it for that as well you know it could, it could be kind of an accurate prediction of how much it's going to cost you um to get all this extra stuff and and, and also and also really kind of focusing on exposing the value you're getting out of the tool if you know what that particular capability is, is costing and who's using it then it really kind of lets you align it to what that's doing for your business 
um, what's your cost of sales effectively? Mm. Yeah. So moving on, um, Oracle <laughs> getting into bed with arch rival Microsoft in order to come up against AWS. I think it's a good thing from a customer point of view because <clears throat> Oracle were always trying to encourage people by one way or another to get them to move to their cloud. And I think a lot of people resisted the temptation. So now joining the two together is good for a customer and probably better for Oracle as well. Is it better for Microsoft though? I, I see this as a really weird move for Microsoft. I yeah. think it's massively one-sided for Oracle, surely. I, I can't see what Microsoft's get out of it, really. Um, unless it's a long con and they're just going to use it to show the Oracle Cloud customers how good Azure is and slowly move them over or at least get all those customers buying Azure Active Directory for the single sign-on and that kind of thing. Um, you know, maybe it's, it's that kind of long-term long plan because it's the only thing I can think of. The only, only thing or the major thing they're really thinking about here is actually how do they beat AWS? Because right. at the moment, public cloud-wise, AWS have got over 60% of the market. Yeah, but I mean, Microsoft, you know, Azure's growing faster than AWS, so, so they, are, they are catching up. Um, we're still, they're still, let's, let's be honest with you, still, I, I agree that it is growing faster, but they're still a very long way behind at the moment, aren't they? Oh, yeah, but like yeah. how much, I don't see how really, how much more they're going to get by hanging around with Oracle. No, but it's the add-ons around it, though, isn't it? And again, yeah. I think it comes down to the fact if if they can see people using Oracle on a platform, then they can go to that person and say, look, we can offer you a really good discount on SQL Server or whatever other options they've got to sort of move people away longer term. I think I think it's quite a clever idea, actually. Yes, it benefits Oracle because they're going to retain some customers shorter term. But the, the long game potentially for Microsoft is a lot more beneficial. Yeah, I, I think as well, because obviously we know that Oracle use um, pressure to move customers into Oracle Cloud as, a, as an audit tactic, uh, an audit settlement tactic. I mean, is it potentially where customers have shied away from that? Is it, well, actually, maybe we'll offer you this card instead where we move you to a different cloud platform, but you can still use our software on it? Possibly, I don't know. I mean, do Microsoft have a better reputation? Or do they come across as more open in that market? Um, I think the, well, the interesting thing, I think speaking to um, people that work for Oracle, but more on the kind of application side of things, which is kind of the cloud bit, that is a really growing part of their business. Um, so I think that's where some of the cloud numbers come from. But I think also it's kind of interesting that there's almost a, a kind of dynamics versus Oracle clash, perhaps in certain use cases where they might be going up against themselves in this kind of partnership. But but I, I agree. I think um, both people want more revenue coming through the cloud model, even if not the cloud, as in not Oracle cloud, but on Azure. Then again, as long as they're getting that, that market share, I think that's kind of the, the main thing they're, they're looking for. As a customer, like Barry said, if if they were to come in, if Oracle were coming in and and then saying, right, you, we can offer you a better deal if you move to the Oracle cloud, but I've already got Azure, I don't want to move to the Oracle cloud. But if they then offer 
something in Azure, their apps in Azure, I'm going to be far more open to that kind of suggestion because it seems like less of a transition than having another cloud provider with the apps on there. If you've got Oracle apps in Azure, it just feels like, I don't know, dare I say a bit easier. I think, I think you've touched on something there, Dave, because it's, uh, it's one of those things. If you move to an Oracle cloud, you're, you know, are you, are you necessarily using the Oracle cloud? Isn't that, it wasn't that one of the great things that some of the data was coming back. If you got shifted to uh, Oracle cloud as a result of an audit, it was bought just to get rid of the audit as opposed to that's yeah. going to be part of our technological strategy. Whereas if you you're more likely to have Azure, you're more likely to be using it. Well, if we're using Azure, we can use the Oracle that we bought as well. But I think the, the most of this is it's still all about getting people to use Oracle Cloud. So it's about connecting Oracle Cloud with Microsoft Azure. So they've got fast connections, single sign-on between Oracle Cloud and Microsoft Azure, running front-end apps in Azure, but still running all your databases in Oracle Cloud. So everything that they've put out there at the minute is very much all focused around making it easier to use the two clouds so i don't think i don't think oracle are looking at it as a as that kind of thing you know maybe, maybe customers can turn it around that way but i think i don't know i mean what's oracle's sort of single sign-on and identity management stuff like is that is that quite bad i don't know i've never seen it but you can imagine if people say i can use it through active directory now that's going to be a big plus for a lot of people because they've already got it well a number of people have already got it yeah. Yeah. so maybe that'll make people more likely to actually use the oracle cloud that, that they've they've been made to buy like you know as rory said maybe that's the idea i think from a purely cynical perspective as well um you know i think larry ellison will use any club he can to try and beat jeff bezos into submission as well yeah, it's uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, I think it is. I think you're right there, Martin, yeah. Uh, just on, Barry, you mentioned about uh, Oracle using audits to drive cloud revenue. I, I don't know if you saw this, I think it was um, Craig Granty from Palisade did a video saying, basically the, the, there's, a, there's a legal dispute, which I think we've mentioned on the podcast before, about the fact that this pension fund is suing Oracle for telling lies about how much cloud they've sold. And the Oracle have moved to dismiss it on the basis that I think the, the argument was these guys are using audit, nasty audit behavior to sell cloud. And Oracle have just said, yeah, <laughs> so what? <laughs> <laughs> They've admitted it, basically. I think, I think that's... Dismissed. So it'd be interesting to see how that goes. I think, Richard, you might be doing something on this shortly. Yeah, yeah, I've got got some documents and things to go through properly and write some up. But yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting tactic, isn't it? <laughs> it's taken the wind out of the whole motion because you know they built up all this evidence that said they had really dodgy sales tactics and really aggressive, and Oracle have just said that's that's how we work with our customers. Oh, okay. Uh, other industry news: VMware now on Azure, Azure. I think this is a Microsoft. This is a Microsoft benefit, as well as a VMware benefit. But it's been available on AWS for a while, um, and so this is everyone catching up and making it uh, options for customers because Microsoft don't want to lose people if they if they're migrating people from on-premise to cloud. The only current location they've got had 
was uh, AWS. So now they've got the option of Azure. Uh, and again, I think it's, it's beneficial for the customers if the prices are similar. Um, why go for AWS if you can just leverage everything in Azure if you've already Microsoft House? I think it's a, it's a good move from Microsoft. I think it's a, a bigger benefit for VMware as well, if I'm honest. Because um, over the last last few years with the onset of public cloud, VMware have seen the revenues from their um, service provider uh, program shrinking because obviously they, like Microsoft with their SPLA agreements, uh, VMware have a specific agreement for service providers, uh, managed hosting platforms, that sort of stuff. And obviously where people were rushing to public cloud, that, that was shrinking. And I think this is a lot of this with the AWS and Azure, this is VMware um, trying to protect their own revenues. Um, and obviously selling it to their customers as well, as, as Jeff's pointed out, selling it to their customers as a, as a benefit because they can then protect their investment they've already made in VMware, adopt a hybrid cloud platform, uh, either Azure or AWS, and still continue to use the on-premise licenses that, uh, that they've already bought. Um, but yeah, I think this, this is a big part. This is VMware staying relevant in the, in the cloud-centric world. So just to say, you can't, you can't do bring your own license with VMware in AWS or Azure. Um, well, not, not onto their platform, no, but, but they're, they're designed to be hybrid cloud platforms. So the on-premise component, you'd continue using your VMware licenses if you've already got them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, Microsoft, I mean, they announced it what was it like December 2017 January 2018 like quite a while ago um and it was funny because they announced it and then VMware did a blog post just kicking off massively about it just like slagging Microsoft off and then it got rewritten and toned down a little bit um and then it went quiet for about a year and a half and now now it's out so I think everyone's been working on it and it's interesting you know, Microsoft and, and VMware have been you know, enemies for a while. So, so they've, they've made friends, Microsoft and Oracle. Um, but I think that was the big thing. You know, you could do it in AWS, you couldn't do it in Azure. I feel like it's ticked off a big box for, you know, something that Azure was missing. Um, so, yeah, it, it seems, seems like a, it'll make that sales process easier. You know, if, if you're Microsoft or a partner, trying to trying to switch someone over to Azure, it's uh, it removes a blocker, doesn't it? Yeah, the other thing as well, from a customer perspective, is it actually obviates the need to worry about bring your own license requirements. Um, so obviously if, you, if you're getting vanilla Azure or AWS and you're on a public cloud platform, you've got to start worrying about looking at your vendors, if you want to bring your own license, see if they have any particular policies or license rules around it. Um, with VMware on Azure and VMware on AWS, you don't have to do that because even the, the components that are hosted by the cloud providers are dedicated platforms, so they're technically private cloud. Um, so any licenses you use on-premise, if you want to park them in, into those platforms, then you can do that without any changes in the rules. Yeah. I'm going to stop you there, Barry. I thought that the cloud meant that the, the death of ITAM would occur because it all manages itself. But that sounds like you need ITAM to help. I, I would contend that you would continue to need IT asset management and software license management, Dave, yeah? Breaking news. That's weird. Phew. <laughs> <laughs> you. Didn't, didn't see that coming, huh? Who'd have thought that? <laughs> there you go. There's a title for the podcast. You still need ITAM. ITAM is dead. Long live ITAM. They did tell you, if you remember. 
Yeah, you both. Yeah, you're trending off over Dave, weren't you? I think both Rich and I had a had a very fruitful LinkedIn trending viral week. So yeah, I'll I'll, um, I'll sign autographs later for you. <laughs> Next section is a brand new segment called Flexera Acquisition of the Week. <laughs> need a, we need a new need a new uh, jingle. Any any recommendations recommendations for a jingle for this? Um, not the one that I'm going to put on the radio. When you talk about, you about Flexera's acquisition of weight, I hear the opening of the theme tune for Curb Your Enthusiasm in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Flexquisition. Uh, so Flexera have acquired risk. Yeah, I mean, uh, the bits that they bought them for, absolutely. You know, there's... Uh, a bunch of stuff that ties in with the cloud, you know, working out, looking at what you've got on premises and it will show you, risk will show you the owners of it all. So you can see, you know, the, the technical owners, you can see all the resources bundled up as an application. So you can work out who owns what, and then it will tell you, right, you know, if you put this in AWS or you put it in Azure, it's going to cost X, Y, and Z. And um, so I think, I think from, from what I've seen, it ties in with, the right scale piece quite well. It's kind of like the middle bit between Flexera on premises and right scale. It sits, sits quite well as a, uh, a sort of bridge for the for the, the move into the cloud. I think. How are they? How on earth are they going to plug all this stuff together? That's a job for life for someone, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, they, 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 they take their time to really kind of. Although actually, they've been they've been quicker at it than than some other acquisitions because. Uh, the MetaSaaS acquisition from last year is kind of now out there as Flexera for SaaS, and um, RightScale's been <laughs> embedded nicely as well. So um, they are, yeah, they, they are building a platform. Undoubtedly, they're, they're building out sideways and really kind of kind of filling gaps. And um, yeah, risk fits in there quite nicely. Are they still looking to be sold? Well, there is those rumours kicking around and sort of calls flying around about it. So. Um, so could this enhance the three billion or whatever the estimate was for for Flexera if they keep making these acquisitions whilst also playing a sales process to sell them? Well, I think it's a race to build a platform. Um, if you're if you're a kind of a niche um, capability or a feature, then you can get acquired. If you if you're a platform, then it's then it's a different. No, you're playing at the same table as the service nows of the world, um, as Salesforce and so on. So I think that's their aim. Strategically, it, it means that they, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of moving into that space. They've had, they had a good year in terms of the Gartner Magic Quadrant, which raises their profile, rightly or wrongly. Um, and they're, they're just building up all those capabilities, the stuff around monetization on, on and um, also around the vulnerability management and things like that um, they've just got a very broad offering I think for for sale would not be the right word anyway I mean I've heard competitors refer to Flexera being up for auction which is not really correct I think the better way of phrasing it is they're looking to refinance they're probably looking for a new although somebody might buy them as uh, to do that but I think they're just looking for new new money a new backer basically which is pretty standard practice. Yeah. 
Um, another bit of industry news I saw this week was, um, this was on LinkedIn Jobs, was uh, Software Licensed Asset Management Director, so basically licensed revenue at VMware in China. And first of all, it's a good job description. If you're looking, if you're like doing audit defense, it's good to see your competitors, your sort of uh, adversaries job description. Because it says, for example, this position is assigned a sales quota. Um, and you've got quarterly the annual target. So no matter what they might say on the material about software management and the value of IP, ultimately it's a sales job. Um, but I think the, the reason I picked this up is um, I, we don't see a lot of information from China as a market. Now, that maybe that's because we're not looking at Chinese content, um, but you never hear like Gartner referring to Chinese sound market or any other company with a lot broader scope. So what do we think of the Chinese market? Have you seen anything on your travels around the Chinese market? From a IP point of view, there's been a lot of challenges around different industries. I mean, I sort of look at Burberry, for example, they and Apple, they were always trying to shut down um, bits in China. I think maybe China are trying to get a little bit more realization into the compliance piece, but maybe that's been driven by the software vendors. I think it's, I mean, it must be a huge market. Um, and, you know, if they can, I think all the software vendors need to start looking that far out to say, well, how has my software been used? And um, it, it's got to be a fantastic market as an opportunity. I remember speaking to Microsoft a few years ago and they were saying, you know, it's a very tactical, well, political play. And they say, you know, we will come into your territory and invest and put, you know, create lots of jobs in China, but you've really got to sort your licensing out. You know, you really got to sort this anti-piracy stuff out. So it's like a bit of a trade-off. Um, but is that not less of a concern now because everything's cloud? I mean, all this, you know, if it's old license keys and perpetual stuff, they're not actually going to have access to much, are they? I mean, I think there's still a lot of, you know, XP, Windows 7, that kind of thing from Microsoft's perspective, Office. I, you know, I think, I think that there's, there's still a lot of on-premises stuff to, to get sorted out um you know before people start moving to the cloud in, in some of these other markets um and I, and I guess i guess that's the same for, for most vendors I, I you know the, the there's enough pirated stuff in, in in use that it's worth going after that even with the rise of the cloud i guess yeah looking at it holistically as well um i mean you think about it the chinese economy has has grown enormously over the last 20 years i mean the, the growth has probably exceeded even their own expectations and obviously with that industrial growth and, and particularly with all of the electronic stuff in, in the industry they're doing there these days as well there's going to be growth in software usage so it, it's potentially it's just being we're just uh, ensuring that where the industries are growing they're actually um continuing to use the licenses in a, in a fair and equitable manner as well yeah and you do end up with sort of China market specific tools as well. I was, I've just done a, uh, a market guide for um, mobile device management. And there's, there's a very, very large um, uh, tool provider whose name escapes me at the moment that's China specific. Basically, It could be used anywhere else in the world, but it's there just to manage, developed to, to do all the kind of MDM stuff that you would get from 
an air watch or, or whatever, um, and very China market focused. So I wonder if there are any sort of ITAM tools that are, um, that are China market specific. What do they use over there? Be interesting to find out. I remember that there was a there's a product JP1 that was Japan specific. I've not had mm. anything Chinese, but I'm sure they exist. Mm. Um, I would have thought big as well. Market, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. What so I was going to say is that if you were a vendor, if you were VMware, you there's probably money to be made just going after the European and US companies that are in China and going after their subsidiaries. Yeah. Um, without going to native Chinese companies. But it's, mm. it's just, a, I just don't, of all the time doing the item review, I've never really heard of activity in China, but I'm, I'm actually very conscious of the fact that that might be because we're not listening in Chinese and not looking at that market, but. Don't worry, Martin, they're listening to you. I was say it could also be because the Chinese government allows the rest of the world to know precisely what the Chinese government wants the world to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. AJ, I think on your bit about having um, specific MDM solutions within China, is the mobile platform's a bit different to desktop because they've got their own um, mobile manufacturers, they've got their own operating systems, they've got, you know, the, the mobile side over there is quite different to the rest of the world. They've got their own version of like WhatsApp and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah that's um, right. Yeah. So, yeah, we've had, um, when I've been in global companies before, you know, they've had. Um, Chinese specific MDM solutions just because it's so different to what we're used to over here in terms of manufacturers and operating systems and stuff um, but yeah you're right I've, I've not seen anything from a hardware or, or a ITAM point of view just from a mobile asset management piece but that might be um, some research for you yeah absolutely yeah interesting other industry news further consolidation with partners insight buying PCM, who I'm not familiar with. Stuart, I think you pulled this one up. Yeah, it's, um, I guess they're, they're, they're mirroring a little bit what Software One's done with Complex, um, just to expand their growth. I think they're an American uh, kind of reseller and um, services provider. So, um, yeah, it's just interesting that, 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 you know, that the number of, of a relatively large size retailers is going to kind of dwindle, I think, as people look on the acquisition route. We're recording this in uh, end of June, and at the start of June, we held our UK conference, and I, I presented the results of our salary survey for 2019. So I think this is the third time we've done this since 2004. And the last time we reported things, salaries had gone up 13% in three years, and then we've done it again two years later, and it's gone up 15%. So the average salary for ITAM pros has gone up 15% in the last two years, uh, which is quite significant. A couple of other things, there's... Uh, there's generally a, a skill shortage and it's got worse. And uh, what I also spoke about at, the, at my session was the fact that the amount of people, the amount of ITAM departments that have a CXO as a direct report has grown significantly. It was 17% was in 2011 and it's gone up to 37% in 2018. So there's a lot more ITAM functions with a lot more scrutiny and board level reporting basically. Um, any any views on this? What do you think of the skills and salaries market? What what do we think about this? I think oh, it's definitely a skill shortage, particularly in uh, in licensing areas. I think yeah, obviously there's a skill short shortage in the industry in general, but particularly in licensing for end user organisations. Just just as a, a side anecdote, I was recently approached um, by a recruiter for one of the big four who are currently building out their audit practice. 
and they were struggling to find people with the IBM licensing, the requisite IBM licensing skills to enable them to actually generate more revenue doing IBM audits. Um, and I said to the recruiter with the salary that you're offering, that's not actually a surprise. You know, um, you need you need to talk to your client and get them to actually increase that salary because it's the only way you'll get people with the skills that they're after. I think that the report's a great advert for the next generation of ITAM professional, though. If you're just coming out of college or university, you're trying to find a, a, a career path that you know you can progress in, that there's good money in, um, that, that adds value. I think a salary survey that shows that the, the salaries are going up and a decent increase as well over the past two years the fact that there are a lot of jobs out there and not enough people to fill them it's really encouraging for our industry that you know more people are taking on the fact that items really important that they need that kind of service within their organization but at the same time i'm i'm kind of worried as well that we're doing all this promotion and we're making organizations realize how important it is but then the next generation the new blood isn't coming into the industry to fill those roles so I think the report's going to be really useful um, and it's really good to see, but we just need to try and turn that into let's get more people into the industry so that we can expand and grow. And like you said, Martin, have that, have more conversations at that kind of board level um, and more scrutiny on, on what we're actually achieving and doing. Yeah. Cause let's face it, Dave, you are yeah. the Justin Bieber of ITAM. There's, <laughs> <laughs> Does that mean he's going to challenge someone 30 years older in the industry to a fight? He's the youngest kid around, isn't he? That's, and, that's, and you're, you're what? You're tipping 30 now, Dave, aren't you? Whoa. <laughs> so maybe not 30 years what? difference, but 20 years difference. You've got a good, people, got a good selection of people to choose from. Yeah. yeah. Let's get the octagon set up, Dave. Get on Twitter and get the challenge out. Yeah. <laughs> Hold on. How's this turned into a violent thing? <laughs> Quite quickly. What was it? Glory holes last week, fighting this week. What is this podcast becoming? Just, I just want to pick up on something actually that Dave touched on. Actually, I think it's really interesting as well. Um, talking about people com people coming into industry. I think what will be really interesting actually the next time you do one of these surveys, Martin, is include a question uh, which says, how did you get into the industry? And I, I think at the moment, probably 80% of responses or more will still be, I was given the job because no one else wanted it. Yeah, by accident. And I think as we see that come down and more and more responses where people are saying, actually, I really wanted to do this. I think that, that will then show the progress we're making in, in encouraging people into the industry. Yeah. I don't think anyone will ever admit that they really wanted to do it. <laughs> One day we'll have somebody put their hand up and say, I chose to do ITAM as a, as a discipline at university and I graduated and all that. Sort of uh, we, we already have one, didn't we? we um, uh, oh, Ben Wardle, is it? Yeah, yeah Ben um, uh, is off to, is it, is it Airbus now or I forget, but um, you know, fi final um, BSc dissertation on ITAM. Which yeah, he right. got a first for, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. So congratulations Excellent. to him, yeah. So, uh, It'll be interesting to see what companies within the industry are offering really good, solid graduate programmes as well. I mean, I know Livingston, a lot of their licensed consultants, they snatch from university, put them on the graduate accelerated programme. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, yeah I, I, it's been a long time since I was at university, but you know, people back then were looking to join the big four or, or, or probably big six back then. Um, into management consultancy roles effectively 
Um, and this, that, that's kind of what we're doing here. Um, we, we're getting away from sort of perhaps the real technical stuff and the real nitty gritty and the real detail. And we're getting, as, as it becomes more strategic, it becomes a valid route into senior management. Um, because you get that exposure across the whole of the technology estate, which is now really close to your customers in products and so on. So uh, if it was seen as a, not as a technical role, as a, as a, as a governance role, as a finance role, would we get more people? I think we probably would. People come out of university and want to be accountants. You know, and that's, that's a great point too, AJ, is that, you know, let's, we should be starting to see people who've come through the item industry hitting the sea level. Hmm positions as well and and that i don't see or hear of necessarily no so are you also kind of saying then that potentially if you throw someone into the item world or, or they're looking at it and they look at licensing and the complications around that that might be putting people off whereas they looked at like you said the governance side of it the processes um kind of the the cost savings and those tangible benefits that that would be more attractive to someone leaving uni i, I don't I don't think there's anywhere else where you can, as a single person, invariably deliver so much bottom line cost savings to an organization than there is an ITAM. So, so certainly in technology, um, look, at, at a young age, you, you, could, you could go into a Greenfield site as a 21 year old straight out of uni and find, as we all know, millions of savings. Um, Do you think uh, they could? If they, I mean, I'm sure if you followed like a work book or you know a workflow that you probably could identify them but do you think someone straight out of university has got the right level of skills to be able to go in and communicate it identify it because you know we apart from Dave we're all sort of knocking on a bit and um, we've got a lot more technical experience than someone else has got outside <laughs> straight out of university so we can we can go and talk the technical stuff to um, the, the techies rather than having some some university graduate come in and say oh but you can do all of this and mm. where, where's the where's the experience to say that the, yeah sure you can do that that's a fair point i think I, you know i i came into the industry from a from a technical background um so i suppose it was a bit easier for me to go and talk to my former colleagues you know i was literally sitting next to them about complicated things like changing how the sql servers are clustered um things like that so so so, so maybe you're right um but um i think as it becomes less about the real nitty-gritty nuances of cores and processes uh in some ways then perhaps it's it can be a, something you can do as a as a management approach yeah. just to finish on salary survey one of the things i mentioned just as a discussion point was uh for the first time in my itam career i've got organizations saying we want to go for organizational certification against the ISO standard, which is, is not a thing yet, uh, but the ISO group is looking to develop that. And I think that's a way of um, adding a whole new level of credibility to your output as an ITAM function. And related to that, there was a job description from Sainsbury's this week, said that the, the, the candidate must have a full knowledge of dash one and dash two, dash one being the full ISO standard, like the best practice standard, and dash two being tagging. Um, what's the views on on that whole uh, trend, if it is a trend around standards? What do we think about that? I I think it's a decent thing to hang your hat on. The nice thing about ISO is that it's not proprietary, so you're not uh, 
It's not an MTP. It's not um, um, an IAITAM uh, certification or, or, a, or a club-based certification. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I think on the whole, it's a good thing. It's interesting that Sainsbury's are going down the, uh, the Dash 2 route. That's, that's, I think that's the future, really. So, uh, yeah, kudos to them. I still maintain my argument that standards are awesome to have and a really good thing to follow, but at the same time, it's not a drag and drop. What works for one organization may not work for another one, uh, depending on the industry, the size, et cetera. So they're, they're great benchmarks, but whether you follow them to the letter or not is something I'm still not comfortable with. Well, I think that's, that's built into the standard, though. You can set your own scope. You don't, there's not like a cookie cutter way of doing it. You actually say, right, I'm going to do you, it. Within the scope of the standard, you could say, I'm going to do servers in Barcelona, you know, and that's it. That's the scope of your, your standard. You don't have to, you know, do some generic process. But would then that bit then get certified? Yeah. Would yeah, that, that be enough for people? Well, that's, that's fine too, because when you put the certificate on the wall, you're supposed to, at least in the ISO world, you're supposed to put a statement of applicability against that certificate as well. So that it says you, you don't sort of run riot with the, uh, with the certificate saying, oh, yes, yes, we're ISO compliant, you, you then tailor it or, or you, you pull it back to say, yes, we're, we're ISO compliant for the service in Barcelona, as Martin mentioned. So and increasingly what you'll, you will find as well is that over time it might actually become an order qualifier to be um, 19770 compliant, rather like in the, in the world of information security, you, you have to be 27001 compliant. Yeah, and it's it's um, for them. It's table stakes, isn't it? It's like you, you know, if you're going to be a tr uh, um, part of our supply chain, you need to prove that you are not going to be a liability in terms of risk, and yeah. we want you to be twenty-seven thousand um, certified. And I think we haven't got we actually haven't got that yet for ITAM, but it's certainly a very strong bargaining chip. If if you've got if you're one of the thirty-seven percent that's got board level scrutiny and you've got a very significant infrastructure, IT infrastructure, which most companies have these days, and you're going, I've, I'm doing my ITAM function, I'm doing it to ISO level, I think that's, that's a way of taking our industry to the next level. I think it's worth really um, proving the quality of what you're doing. Anyway, off soapbox, step down from soapbox. Like, jargon buster. Jargon buster! We've got two jargon busters this, this month because we made such a pig's ear of last month's. I mean, uh, sorry, uh, we... We? Um, we? Yeah. <laughs> I'm claiming this one. Thank and, you very and much. Our, and our listeners wouldn't even know that because it was so bad. It was on the, on the cutting room floor. Um, Thankfully. Multiplexing. Do you want me to... Uh, I don't know. No, no, please don't. No, no, no. no, 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 no. Do you want me to rescue you? Please. Do you, do you want me to rescue you? Well, both of you I, I and say, Rich just, were not here last week, and I, and I felt I, compelled to try. That's what I just try. want to point out, is that the two people that could have explained it weren't on the podcast last month. <laughs> no, could have explained it clearly. There is a difference. I'll, I'll start with a question, actually, because this, this is something that not a lot of people know. Does anyone know where the term multiplexing originally came from? No, Barry. Where does the term multiplexing was come it, from? It's a Microsoft-ism, wasn't it, back in the day, or am I also no, incorrect no, that? It predates, uh, it predates uh, Microsoft by a while. It's, it's actually an old telecommunication term. Um, telecommunication computer network. So it's, it's sometimes known as Vagal. MUXI, uh, but multiplexing Vagal? was a, a technical method by which you could combine multiple signals into, into one signal over a shared medium. So 
you can you can tell I used to work in communications in the Royal Air Force, can't you? Always learning. Um, but anyway, so in, in in a licensing world, in a software world, multiplexing is effectively where you've got um, multiple users or devices connected into a into a, a single application, a business application, for example, and, and by extension, um, indirectly interacting with an underlying piece of software. Um, so you take databases, for example, um, the vast majority of business applications will have an underlying database, whether it be Oracle database, Microsoft SQL Server. Both vendors um, talk about multiplexing. So effectively, if you're, if you're licensing users who are all accessing a single business application, um, and that business application is then interfacing with the database that's underlying it, you still have to license all of those users for accessing that database, even though they're not directly interfacing with it. And that is multiplexing. Cool. And next jargon buster in as succinct terms as you can, cluster. What's a cluster? So um, a computer cluster is um, a set of connected computers. Um, you can have as few as two in a cluster and there's no theoretical maximum limit to the number that you can have in it. So effectively, they're all connected, they all work together. Um, so it can also almost be viewed as a single system effectively. There's, there's two sort of major types of, of cluster. Uh, one thing I should say as well, actually just point out at this stage, that one of the key defining features of a, of a cluster is shared storage. So all of the nodes, as they would be known, all of the computers within that cluster will be accessing the same shared storage. Um, so there's two, two major types of cluster. One's sort of high, high performance computing or load balancing. Um, and the other one is, is high availability or, or disaster recovery. So with HPC, you load balancing, you effectively, you, you pull the resources of all of the, the connected computers to run a particular application. Um, good example of that is uh, VMware's um, distributed resource scheduling. So effectively vMotion DRS, where you're pooling the physical resources of all the host servers in a, in a cluster. Um, and then virtualizing them and they actually then become virtual resources for the VMs that are being hosted within that cluster. So my, um, my, and as I say, the other, the other dim, example is... My dim view of it is, is it's basically getting lots of little computers to act as one big one, right? Well, yeah, absolutely. I used to say the, the other version of it, as I say, is, is high availability, where you have active and, and passive nodes. Um, and if an active node fails, a passive node will pick up its workload. So, but yeah, it is, the, the short version is it's a load of computers connected together to work as one and you just pull all the resources. Cool. Another news item I found was, uh, was NASA um, being hauled over the coals by uh, their administrators around, um, they, they, they got hacked uh, via an unmanaged and unknown about Raspberry Pi. Um, Raspberry Pis are these uh, tiny, um, uh, uh, very cheap computing devices, very popular in engineering and science backgrounds because they're, they're pretty powerful. Uh, actually, they're, they're, there's a new version out this week, um, which has proven very popular. £35, I think, for a pretty capable computer. Um, so they get used in all sorts of things. For example, one of the things they get used for is, um, is the clusters that Barry was just talking about. Um, uh, you can build clusters out of these things very cheaply and get a lot of computing power. Anyway. Uh, plugged into the um, to the NASA network, um, some unpatched vulnerabilities. Nobody knew about it, and bingo, they were hacked. Um, so, um, just an example of uh, IT asset management, obviously helping there because even though it's kind of a it's a, so it's an ARM based um, Linux based computer primarily, 
Uh, you can still discover that stuff with, with your discovery tools. It will have an IP address, it will have a MAC address. Um, you will be able to query the BIOS perhaps via, probably via SSH, for example. Um, and so it's just an example of needing to discover the whole of your network. Um, and otherwise things, bad things happen. And uh, NASA have not a great reputation for, um, for, for cybersecurity. Once again, they're an engineering and science-led area. Um, if, you've ever, if you've ever spoken to people in academic institutions, it's the same there. Very, very difficult to, um, to corral all these incredibly brainy people who think they know best um, to follow standards and so on. So that's, that's it in a nutshell. Um, unmanaged device, undetected device, exploited device, um, nasty people inside your network. So thank you for listening to our radio show for June. Uh, just a quick one from us is that uh, we've saved the dates. Please save the date, 20th and 21st November uh, for our Australian conference. For any listeners that might be in Australia, uh, that's in Melbourne this year, shifting from Sydney to Melbourne. So that's one date for your diary. And our very own Rich Gibbons is uh, on the hunt for speakers for both Australia and USA. So if you've got a story to tell, um, about anything you've done in the ITAM space, please reach out to myself or Rich. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd, I'd say what I found is, you know, come to us with any ideas that you've got, even if you think it doesn't quite fit, it, you know, if it's good, we'll make it fit. Um, you know, we want as many real world people with real world stories speaking as we can. So, you know, give us a shout and we can have a chat. We can help you with, you know how how to build a presentation how to present all that kind of thing so if you're even a tiny little bit interested give me a shout and we'll uh, we'll, we'll get it sorted and it's fantastic to see somebody that maybe hasn't spoken before or has not done anything like this before and then you see them go through the journey and they pop out the other side as a as a you know accomplished speaker and it really raises their confidence and it raises their profile of both them and their company and it's it's a, it's a really great thing to see so if you want to go on that journey please um, give us a shout with that, thank you very much, gentlemen, and have a good July and catch you next month. Yeah, nice one. Cheers, all. Thanks, Martin. Thanks. Bye. Yeah. Cheers, Martin. Thanks, all. Oh, <laughs>